2 Peter, we're in chapter 1. And we will get going. Um, you know, by way of introduction, as you're making your way there, I'll tell you a brief story, just to kind of introduce to you where we're at in our text. When I was a kid, I was in, I was in the second grade. Um, I was going to a Catholic school, and, um, and all that that implies, everything, all the stereotypes, at least for me, were true. There were the scary nuns. There were the teachers that would hit you with a ruler. There was, you know, it was, it was that. But... You know, there were some good parts about it, too. Anyway, so I, I was in second grade. It was getting towards the end of the school. In fact, it was the end of the school year, and we were getting released for summer. And so the teacher had a pile of stuff that was left over from, you know, science experiments and things like that. And she basically said, hey, I'm going to let you come up one by one, and you can go through this, this pile of stuff, and you can take something. You, get, you, you can each take one thing. And, and so we all got to go up there. Well, I went up there, and I took a packet of carrot seeds. I don't know. I don't even particularly like carrots, but I wanted these seeds. I thought, yeah, that's cool. I'll take that. So I'm seven years old. I go home. I've got a packet of carrot seeds. I actually read the instructions on the back, and I prepare a section of ground in our backyard, and I plant these carrot seeds. And every single day, I would go out there faithfully, like clockwork, and I would water those seeds and all. And, and after a while, you know, the, they started to grow. They sprouted, and I'm, I remember the day that they first, and I'm like, yes, they're, they're there. And again, I would go out there, I'd water, I'd tend them. And, you know, the, the temptation is you want to see how they're doing, right? So the temptation is, oh, let's pull the thing out and see how it's doing. I resisted that temptation, which is, if you know me, is a miracle, okay? And, and so I was, you know, just always Mr. Impulsive. Let's, you know, if it, if it says 10, let's do 100. You know, that, that's just always how I've been. So the fact that I had the patience and the discipline not to yank these suckers out of the ground was amazing, you know? But I didn't, man. And I'm tending them. And, I, and so the instructions are, every once in a while, you know, you just move a little bit of dirt just to kind of see the, 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 the top of the... the carrot there, how wide it's getting, that sort of gives you an indication of where they're at and when it's ready to pull them out, and then you just cover it back up and water it. So, so this is what I was doing. And so I finally went out there, and it was a long time. I mean, it takes a couple of months for these things to grow. And I'm waiting. Miracle of miracles, and the stock is getting bigger. And so I go out there, and I decide, all right, tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull these. Tomorrow's the day. So I wake up early the next morning. I go running out there to harvest my carrots, and they're gone. Every last carrot. Scarred me for life. It was horrible. I won't, I won't garden to this day. No, but I was devastated, crying, winning. I can't believe it. And my mom's like, honey, you know, a gopher must have gotten it. Oh, that stupid gopher, man. What is going on here? Now, I tell you that story to introduce you to where we're at here in First Peter because the big idea of where we're at is, is this. How can we see fruitful growth in our lives? That's the question. How can we see fruitful growth in our lives? Because as Christians, we are called to produce fruit. I guess in this instance, vegetables. But at any rate, 
metaphor still applies. How can we see this fruitful growth? And we have an enemy. Just as there was a, 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 an enemy that went after my carrots and destroyed them, you have an enemy that's going after you, that wants to keep you from bearing fruit, that wants to rob you of your fruit. But yet there's a way, a process that we as believers are to produce fruit. And so that's the question that we're going to tackle here in our text. How can we see fruitful growth in our life? Now, if you were with us last week, you know that knowledge is the key theme in Second Peter. Uh, the word know or knowledge is used 13 times in the th- brief three chapters that comprise this epistle, uh, fancy word for letter, which is what Second Peter is. And uh, um, basically, this knowledge, it involves both intellectual understanding as well as a living participatory understanding. It's both, where basically the exercise of our faith begins, man, we, 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 we grow and we have this, this intellectual knowledge that we gain as well as an application of the knowledge, the, the experiential knowledge that we have with the Lord. And so... That's just the, the, the idea of the walk of faith that we're in. Now, again, this exercise of faith, we saw last week, it begins with a humble confession of who we are and of who Christ is. The, the epistle starts off with, with Peter saying, Simon, Peter. We looked at that last week. Simon, the, his given name. Peter, the name that Jesus gave him. Simon, reflective of Peter, who was impulsive, foot and mouth disease. The guy that needs, you know, to be rescued by the Lord. The guy that, that you know, God had to rebuke on occasion and so on. And just the guy that we can all, quite frankly, relate to. Uh, on multiple levels to where, oh, this is a blow, this guy's a blow it. I'm a blow, I'm a blow it. Oh, you know, we're, we're good friends, man. You're just like me. But he, so he has this humble confession of, uh, of who he is. I'm Simon, but he also has this humble confession of, I'm also Peter. I'm a man who's been changed, saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, given this new name, this, this name that means little rock, founded on the profession of faith. Hey, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And so we, we saw. That, that this, this walk that we're called to walk, it begins with this humble confession, and then it continues with a precious possession. And this precious possession, Peter describes it as a like precious faith. The idea, hey, listen, I'm a man changed by God with a new nature and a future and a hope, and, and you can be as well. And that precious possession ultimately translates, we saw last week, to a powerful manifestation that you and I can be partakers of the divine nature and that we can escape the corrupt world. We looked at this last week, but Peter now says in verse 5, also for this very reason, for what reason? For the reason that, hey, listen, we have obtained a like precious faith. We have a future and a hope. We are a new creation in Christ, that God's done this great work. But for this very reason, Peter says, We need to add something to it. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For, he says in verse 8, if these things are yours... 
and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the idea here is that where there is life, there has to be growth. Where there is life, there has to be growth. That's the idea. Um, for me, I, I, I've got three children, three adult children. And they all grew up, they all got married, and they all started their own families. And that's, that's the point. That's the way it's supposed to be. There's supposed to be this trajectory, this growth, right? Now I've got eight grandchildren, six and under, right? Three of them are two-year-olds. So the last three weeks, we have had Caitlin, who's my baby girl, my middle child, uh, she and her husband uh, sold their house up north. And, uh, you know, they, they sold it, you know, they, they hired a, a stager, they come in and they stage the house to sell it, and so they move in this cool furniture and, and all this stuff. Well, okay, so Caitlin has, has a five-year-old, Holland, and a two-year-old, Abby, Auburn, and, uh, you know, five-year-olds and two-year-olds are not conducive to a staged house. So for the last three weeks, they crashed our pad, because apparently our, our house is conducive to a five-year-old and a two-year-old. My house looks like a bomb went off in it right now. Now, here's, here's why that's cool. It's, it's cool because that's the season that our kids are in. They're five and two, you know? They make a mess out of stuff. That's just what kids do. But when you have kids, and I always like to joke, that basically, right now, for the most part, my grandchildren are useless. They don't, they don't contribute anything to the bottom line. You know, they're just a net gain. They suck energy and time and they destroy things. And, you know, that's, that's just what kids do. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you have these, the, these children, you have these grandchildren, and the hope is that they will grow and mature. You know, that's what you want. You want them to grow up and mature. Because birth isn't the, the it's not the end, it's the beginning, right? Birth is not the end, it's the beginning. You want them to grow and mature. So, so Abby, Holland, they come to my house, they trash it, two, five, cool. But if Holland's now 25, if Auburn's now 22, and they come to my house and they trash it like they do, it ain't cool anymore. It's not cute anymore. Why? Because, you know, you want them to grow up and to mature. And, well, it's the exact same way with God, okay? God's heart for you, he loves you as his child, but for crying out loud, he wants you to grow up. Okay, and so this is what Peter's talking about here. Why? Well, in verse 8, he tells us, so that we will be neither barren nor unfruitful. That's the reason. Now, let's state that in the positive. Rather than saying it in the negative, why does he want us to grow up? Well, so that, so that we will live fruitful lives that last. That's the idea. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in John's gospel, he said this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And in order to do this, Peter says in verse 5 that we have to be diligent to add some things to our faith. Now, let me just make it clear here that we are not talking about salvation. You add nothing to the equation of salvation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were like the guy in the funeral possession in the town of Nain. Jesus comes cruising into town, and here's this cat going to his funeral. He's in the casket. Jesus walks up, places his hand on, and says, you know, arise. And this guy rises up from the dead. That's you and me. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We had nothing to the equation, okay? So we're not talking about salvation. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this thing called sanctification. $5 Christian word simply means to grow up, okay? And, and, it, and I'll put it to you this way. See, the, the thing is, is that we need to grow up just like, hey, a newborn baby. When you were born, you did nothing for that to transpire, right? Your parents conceived you, all of a sudden you were born. But you add something to the equation of growing up, don't you? It's you who has to take the steps. It's you who has to, you know, learn to obey and follow the rules and learn to get a job for crying out loud and pull your weight. You know, there's the, there's the deal. There's a process. So this is what we're talking about when we say that we have to add some things to the equation. Now, he says there in verse 5, giving all diligence add to your faith. Okay? Now, if you want to circle that phrase, giving all diligence, Nearby, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you could write this. You could write, to bring beside with haste. Okay, that's, that's basically the idea here. Now, you could also circle that, that phrase, add to, in verse 5. Giving all diligence, add to. Now, next to add to, you could write this. You could write, to supply or to furnish. Okay, so we put those things, those two together. And the idea there is that spiritual growth doesn't just happen. There's some assembly that's required, okay? Any of y'all uh, have businesses where you employ people? Anybody here an employer? Okay, a few hands. So you know when you're an employer and you hire people, very rarely do you hire somebody who's a completed project, right? Those are gifts from God when you hire somebody who has no assembly required. But usually what happens when you hire somebody is that there's a certain degree of assembly that's required. You have to train them and, 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 and invest in them and, and, and so on. And so this is the idea here is that there is assembly required in your life and in my life. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, it's not enough for Christians to let go and let God as though spiritual growth were God's work alone. You've heard the saying, let go, let God. He says, that's not enough. Spiritual growth isn't God's work alone. He says the Father and the Son must work together. And this is our first point. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Fruitful growth requires purposeful participation. Fruitful growth in your life as a Christian requires purposeful participation. Now, we see this principle throughout the New Testament. It's, it, it, it's throughout there. We see it in Philippians chapter 2. Where, where we're exhorted there to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We see it in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. In Ephesians 1 and verse 11, we read, In Him, Jesus, we, have, uh, we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. For we are his workmanship, uh, Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And so, so again, this, this principle of fruitful growth, it requires your purposeful participation. We see it in Colossians 1.24. Paul says this. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, you might think when you read this that Paul's saying that he's sacrificially adding to Jesus' work on the cross. When he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That kind of seems like, oh, he's saying that Jesus' death on the cross it was lacking something and there's something that he needs to add to that. No, Paul's not referring to Jesus' suffering on the cross. He's referring to Jesus' affliction that he endured during his earthly ministry. And what he's saying here is that, look, Jesus' work didn't end at the cross. Why? Well, because he passed the baton on to you and me. You read Acts chapter 1. You know, in my former work, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. The operative word being began because his work continues. Through who? Through you and me. And so in that sense, Jesus is still afflicted. He still suffers as he ministers through us, right? Paul told Timothy this. He said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so the point is, is that fruitful growth requires our purposeful participation. Second point, if you're taking notes, and you can just jot this down, that fruitful growth follows a practical path. It follows a practical path. So not only does it take your purposeful participation, but it also follows a practical path. And the first step on that path that Peter says here is virtue. But also for this very reason, verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith. First thing he says to add, virtue. Now, if you wanted to circle that word virtue, nearby, you could write this word. You could write moral excellence. Now, if you have the New Living Translation today, they've already done that for you. That's the way they define that, which is a great translation. That's what it means, moral excellence. Maybe you have the NIV. It says goodness. That's the word that you want to circle nearby. You want to write moral excellence. See, to the Greek philosophers, when anything in nature fulfilled its purpose... They considered that thing to be virtuous. They considered that thing to be morally excellent. For example, if you had land that produced a crop, then it fulfilled its purpose and it was considered to be virtuous or it was considered to be morally excellent. Or if you had a tool that rightly worked and functioned and, and, and did what it was supposed to do, then it was considered to be excellent because it fulfilled its designed purpose. Now, the idea that Peter is conveying here when he says that you need to add virtue to your life as a Christian, what he's saying here is that, look, if you're a Christian, if you're a person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith, then what that means is that you have Christ in you. And having Christ in you, well, it means now that you need to put feet on your faith. You need to begin to walk in the, the, the new nature with Christ being in you. And you need to act in a way that honors Him. And, and when you do that, you fulfill your purpose, which is the virtuous step that Peter is saying that we need to do. It's the moral excellence that you're called to do. Now, 
I don't put this on the screen for you, but write this down, Galatians 2.20. I want to convey to you the idea of, of what, is, what Peter's communicating here. This putting on of virtue. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Jesus, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this conveys this idea of of virtue, of moral excellence. Now, it's not the same Greek word, but the idea that Paul expresses in Philippians chapter 3 comes close to sort of articulating what we're talking about here. There in Philippians 3, I'll put this on the screen for you, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press forward for the mark, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. Listen, as a believer in Christ, as somebody who's saved, the exhortation is, look, Here's how you, you begin to, to grow and start to grow up as a Christian. You start, here's, here's the first step in living a fruitful life is, is that you live in a morally excellent way. That you say, man, I'm, I want to live like Jesus. You know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's what I want to do. I want to do what Jesus would do. I, wanna, I want my actions to be like that. Now, Here's the good news about that, because you go, hey, that would be great. If I could do that, you know, praise God. Well, the good news about this is that, yes, this is something that you and I are called to add to our faith in practice, but it's something that we do cooperatively with God. Again, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So it's both and. It's like this. If you ever, if you've ever weightlifted and you're on the and you're on the bench, you know, doing doing bench press, I I do it all the time, you can tell. And so you're there and you're supposed to have a spotter, right? Now, what's the spotter's job? He keeps you from killing yourself, right? He puts his hand on the bar and you're pushing and he's there to, 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 to help you. Now he's shouting encouragement, something like this. Go, push, push, go, right? You know, and you're like, I'm dying, I'm dying. And he's like, no, 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 push, push, push. And you're like, oh, I'm gonna die. And so there you go. And, he, and you, you finally, you know, you've done it. And he says, do it again. And you're like, oh, I'm God, you're gonna kill, you're gonna kill me. And you know, and you do that, right? And the spotter is there. Now, at the end of this thing, you're jello. You're, you're just, you can't feel anything. And you're convinced, boy, that last rep that you did, that, that that guy lifted the whole thing, you know? And maybe he did, but you ask him, and you're like, how much of that was you, and how much of that was me? He's like, I'm not going to tell you, you know? Because what was it? Well, part of it was you, part of it was him. Kind of a good illustration here, what it is. In our, we're supposed to, to give our part to, to live this moral excellent life, but we have God there as our spotter that's, that's helping us in the process. It's both and. It's both and. 
So the, the point is, is that God's going to help you as you seek to add virtue to your faith. Now, Peter says there's another step. The next step that we need to add to virtue, he says, is we need to add knowledge. Now, this word knowledge, um, Warren Wiersbe describes it as a knowledge that is growing. Okay, that's kind of the idea here. Now, it stands to reason that if we endeavor to add virtue and to, to walk in a way that honors Jesus, if we're endeavoring to do that, then the next thing we're going to want to add is this. We're going to want to have knowledge. We're going to want to have a growing knowledge of Jesus, right? A knowledge that is growing of Jesus. See, I guess I'll illustrate it this way. I had, I had a guy years ago, baby Christian, and he asked me to disciple him. And so I said, man, I'd love to. So I'm taking him through Ephesians chapter 5. And, and towards the end of Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about, you know, don't, don't, be, don't be filled with wine, but, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm talking to him about that. And I said, look, the way this is written, it's basically be being filled with the Spirit. It's talking about an active, ongoing thing that happens. I go, you know, and it says, and it, and it correlates, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I said, you know, how do you get drunk? Well, you, you, you drink a lot of drinks. Yes. How do you stay drunk? Well, you keep drinking a lot of drinks. Exactly. Same thing. So he says, don't do that. But where the Holy Spirit is concerned, hey, partake of God. Draw, you know, ask the Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Continue to be filled. Be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what this is saying. So what does this new believer get out of this? He said, wait, wait, hold on a minute. Are you telling me I can't get drunk? I'm like... Yeah, bro, you can't get drunk. He's like, I can't even catch a buzz? I go, no, man, you're not, you're not supposed to be altered. That's it, you know, you're supposed to put those things off, you know, and, and not get drunk. He goes, well, I can still smoke weed, right? <laughs> I'm like, no, man, you can't still smoke weed. So what does is, what is this example illustrate for us? The need for knowledge. See, because here's the thing. If you, if you look at most churches in America, there is a famine where the knowledge of God is concerned. People don't know what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to not do. And so what happens is, by and large, we've got a whole nation of people who sort of set their own compass by their feelings and their emotions. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we got a lot of people who kind of just go through life going, well, I think this, and I think that, and I think this, so I'm going to do that. And God knows my heart and everything. It's like, look, what we really need to do is we need to add knowledge to our walk because if we will add knowledge to our walk, then we will know, hey, look, you ain't supposed to get drunk. No, you're not supposed to get high. Not even a little bit, okay? I know God made every herb-bearing plant in Genesis, but God doesn't want you getting high, you know? And so what we do is we learn. I joke about this, but listen, I'm sincere. We need to know God. And in, 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 in if we grow in our knowledge, then what that's going to help us do is it's going to help us to walk in a moral, ex, morally excellent way. Because now I've been instructed from his word what is right and what is wrong. Now, <clears throat> This is why the mission statement of our church, I'll put it on the screen for you. What's our mission statement? It's making disciples who know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. 
And this is why knowing is prominent in our mission statement because it's, it's, the, it's the primary pillar. It's the first pillar of why we exist as a church. That we need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we do here as a church? Well, we make a, put a priority and a, and a premium on we want to help you to know Jesus. So it's a matter of, hey, here on Sunday morning, I'm going to teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's where the power is. I'm, I'm going to make sure that, you know, and encourage you, get plugged into a growth group during the week if you at all possibly can, a home Bible study. What's going to happen there? You're going to go through a book of the Bible. You're going to be taught the Word of God. Why? Well, David said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We want you to know God's word so you can set the compass of your life on the true north and to, to navigate through this difficult life because there's a lot of things that come up and you need to know God's word so that you can live in a morally excellent way. And everything, men's, women's studies during the week, mops ministry, awana, whatever it is, we want to make sure that you're learning the Word of God. My grandson, River, he's two. And, you know, my, my kids uh, put together the, you know, the risers and the, the, the song, the, it's music for kids based on Scripture. And when my kids were producing that, um, it, it, it's, it's, there's power in music, man, that helps kids to memorize it. My two-year-old grandson, is, says to us, he's there and he knows the whole song. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, this is him talking, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He's two. We want you to learn the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's going to help you set the true compass of your life so that you can maintain and begin to aspire towards living in a morally excellent way. And by the way, this is not a commercial for what's going on at Reliance Church. It's an exhortation to say, we want you to make sure that you're learning the Word of God. It's, it's, paramountly, it, it's paramount and it's important. Why? Because if you know Him more, you're going to sin less. If you know Jesus more, you're going to sin less. Well, that leads us straight into Peter's next addition on this practical path to fruitfulness. He says, listen, you, uh, you have to pursue, you need to add virtue. He says, you need to add knowledge. And next, you'll notice he says, you need to add self-control. Self-control. If you, if you have a King James Version, it's, it's the word temperance, but it's the same thing. Self-control. Here's the deal. The more you know, the more you'll grow, and the more it will show. Okay? The more you grow, the more you'll know, and the more it will show. And that's the idea here, that as you know and grow in Christ, you're going to be better able to control yourself. Now, when, when he says self-control, you, you could circle that. Nearby, you could write this. You could write holding oneself in. John MacArthur says that's the idea of that, of that word right there, that you're holding yourself in. Now, the Greeks used this word to describe athletes in training, this, the, the, this word for self-control. 
how they held themselves in, how they held themselves in in their diet, how they held themselves in in their disciplined exercise, how they held themselves in in their discipline to abstain from different things in their lives. And if you know somebody who competes on a professional level, you know how they hold themselves in. Bob Scolton goes to our church and, and you know, races motorcycles. You know, the 200 mile an hour on the, the track motorcycles. He competes on a professional level. And so he, you know, trains, holds himself in, diet, exercise, the whole bit, so that he can go out and risk his life on this crazy thing. I went there, first time he asked me to go out there, I was literally nauseated watching this. I'm thinking of my days as a paramedic, I'm like, somebody... They go down, they're going to need a mop just for these guys, you know. But what are they doing? They're disciplining themselves in this, in this they're holding themselves in in this self-controlled way. Now Paul, as I said, Paul uses the same analogy to describe how you and I should behave as Christians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said this. He said, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. You know what second place is? It's the first loser. He says, run to win, okay? Don't, don't go for the, par- oh, I got 18th in my par- participation medal. Keep your participation medal. He says, run to win. He goes on. He says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. Mixes his metaphors here, but that's okay. We still get it. You know, he said, well, I'm not just beating the wind. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Simple question for you, takeaway here on this point. Are you exercising? Are you characterized by exercising self-control? Or are you characterized by making excuses? Well, they may be mad. Well, they cut me off. Well, you know, this, that, whatever it is. No, self-control, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And, it's, and it is part of this process of things that you're to add to your life in a disciplined way. Well, next I want you to notice that he says that you add, verse 6, to self-control... He says, to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, next thing on the list, you add perseverance. Perseverance. Now, this is a very interesting word, and, um, and, and I realize it's kind of in the middle of the verse, but I want to just sort of stop for today, just looking at this, this next thing that we're to add, perseverance. I want to kind of camp here for a minute, and we'll, we'll pick it up next week to go through, through the rest of these things, but perseverance to very under, to understand it what what the, you know th- th- this word it's it's a pregnant word there's a there's a lot that's in here okay um it's not just patience it's patience on steroids okay perseverance here it, it carries the idea of remaining strong in the face of unwelcomed toil and hardship and adversity 
And not only that, but, but, it, but it, and it's not just a, a, you know, an accepting or a giving over to or, or just sort of like a, oh, I'm, I'm going through adversity, fine. It's not, you know, it's not like a, I roll over and just give up to, oh, fine, I'm just going to persevere through that. That's not what this word means. What this word carries within it, it, it has a forward look to it, okay? It, it has a forward look in faith to God, trusting his purpose in it. And we have a great example from Jesus Christ to what it means to persevere. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus went to the cross, he, he, he didn't go kicking and screaming, and he didn't go complaining. He said, look, nobody takes my life from me, I give it. And he went to the cross and he said, look, Father, not my will be done, your will be done. And, and, and he, he, he goes forward with what? With a trust knowing that there is a purpose for the cross. And let me just say this right now. Some of you right now, you need to understand what it is to persevere because you are going through a time of persecution and struggle yourself right this moment. Causes you to doubt, causes you to fear, causes you to complain, causes you to, to lose sleep at night. I don't know what you're going through, but you know what I'm talking about, and you're right there with me right now. My wife, she, um, every year, I'm married up, man. Every year, m- my wife goes to the Lord at the beginning of the year. She seeks him, and she, she's seeking him to find out Okay, what, what's the thing this year, Lord? What is it? And, and there's a theme for the, for the years. And God, over the years, has given to her, like, this is, this is my word for you this year. This is the theme this year. So she goes to the Lord this year. At the beginning of the year, as it's approaching, she says, Lord, what, what's your word for me this year? And the Lord speaks to her and said, I'm going to unravel you this year. She's like, oh, goody, <laughs> awesome. That was his word. I'm going to unravel you. And so promptly in February, overnight, literally overnight, her father lost his mind. She just lost her mom the year before. Her, she's the baby of the family. Her dad's Scot- Scotsman with red hair. She's the only red-haired kid in the family, her daddy's favorite. And she loses her dad. And, and he's just, he's, I mean, we're talking hard restraints. We're talking, I mean, it was, it, was, it was brutal. It was horrible. And that started a five-month procedure that ended with his death in June. Then the physical stuff started. And I'm not going to get into all, the, into all the details, but I will just simply say that God has been unraveling my wife in a way, and as her husband, it's, it's so hard for me because, because I, I'm, I'm powerless to really... I mean, I, said, I, I kept saying to her, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And she, she finally, at one point, she goes, look, Ted, please don't ask me if I'm okay. 
because I'm not okay. Just if you could just ask me, is there anything, what can I do for you? And so, so like multiple times a day, is, it's just, it's become my mantra. What can I do for you, sweetie? What can I do for you, sweetie? Now, my wife in going through this, and there have been tears and there have been hard times. But going through this, what's, what's happened is that she's, she is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of her faith. She's going through this trial saying, look, this really sucks right now. But you know what? She knows God gave her the word at the beginning of the year, I'm going to unravel you, and she understands what that means. Because we think of unraveled as I'm coming apart. But, but no, the idea is that, look, I'm going to take the knots and I'm going to undo them. I'm going to take the things that are all crooked and bundled up and I'm going to straighten those things out. And so she understands that God gave her this word because he's never going to leave her. He's never going to forsake her. He's going to see her through her trial. And listen, some of you in that place, so you can relate, you go, hey, you want to talk about unraveling, Pastor Dad? How much time do you got? Listen, God will see you through. And he wants to see you through. Therefore, Hebrews 12.1 says, We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word endurance, it's the exact same word as we're reading here, perseverance. God wants you to persevere. Now, as I said, we're going we're to stop there. We'll get into godliness next week. And, um, you know, really what we're going to see is really true religion. And there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So I want to spend more time with that. But what I want to do is closing right now. To pray and to go before the Lord and just, just to be able to say, God, everyone's got a next step. What's my step? Where am I at here? And, and by the way, it's not like, you know, these steps are you take them once and now you never take them again and then all of a sudden one day you arrive. Okay, here's, here's, here's when you arrive. You're going to hear a bus and a honking and then it's all going to go black and then you're going to see a white light and you're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's when you know you've arrived. But until then, it's one step forward and three steps back and another step forward. A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. So the prayer is, Lord... What's my step? Where am I at today?